Welcome to Bite-Size Battles. As the ground shuddered violently and thick clouds of noxious smoke and dust filled the air, millions of people around the world could scarcely believe that the twin towers of New York's World Trade Center had collapsed. The tragedy had been brought about by the cold-blooded, calculated terrorists of Al-Qaeda, hijacking and then smashing jet fuel and passenger-laden airliners into the iconic buildings. The Pentagon, a symbol of the United States' military prestige, was hit too. And a final airliner crashed when its heroic passengers fought back against the hijackers. Nearly 3,000 people, mostly civilians and emergency services workers, were dead. The experience was searing, enraging, awakening for the United States, in a way the country hadn't experienced since Pearl Harbor 60 years before. And like Pearl Harbor, the American military giant now unfurled itself, flexed its muscles and called its friends to assemble. Just a month later, the United States and Britain retaliated in a massive bombing campaign of Afghanistan, from where the attack was orchestrated and financed. Supported logistically by several other allies, they teamed up with the Afghan Northern Alliance in the fight against the ruling Taliban, who were all but suckling al-Qaeda at the teat. But while the militaries of the coalition overran the Taliban, what the American people and government wanted most of all was the man who had masterminded 9-11. Revenge would not be considered to have been had until he had been found and brought to justice. That demand sparked the largest, most expensive, most determined, most far-reaching manhunt the world has ever seen. From the mission control rooms of the CIA to the barren wastes of the Afghan-Pakistani mountains, the hunt lasted a decade. Welcome to the fifth episode of Secret Warfare, The Hunt for Bin Laden. Osama bin Laden declared war on the United States five years before, in 1996, and issued a second fatwa, or religious ruling, in 1998. In these, he complained bitterly of American military presence in the Middle East, of US support for Israel, and of what he claimed were massacres of Muslim civilians. Most seriously of all, it provided Islamic religious authorization encouragement even, for indiscriminate killing of Americans and Jews anywhere they could be found. But at the time, no one was really listening, or at least no one took it seriously. Sadly for many, they were about to be rudely awoken. Shortly following bin Laden's second fatwa in 1998, two American embassies were simultaneously bombed in East Africa the first in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania, the second in Nairobi, Kenya. More than 200 people were killed when two trucks laden with high explosives were detonated outside the embassies, killing several American staff and military personnel, but mostly local civilians. 
Then, in the year 2000, the American missile destroyer USS Cole suffered a suicide attack from two terrorists in a small fiberglass boat carrying up to 700 pounds of C4. The shaped charge was detonated against the hull, renting it with a 40 by 60 foot gash, killing 17 sailors and injuring 37 more. Al-Qaeda claimed responsibility for all three of these attacks and several other foiled or failed plots. If bin Laden hadn't been taken seriously before, he had the United States' attention now. It was all something of a sharp handbrake turn for relations between Al-Qaeda and the US. Just a decade earlier, the CIA had trained, funded and armed the group when it was founded by bin Laden in 1988. Why? Because it was fighting the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. The Cold War had not yet ended, of course, so the Soviet Union and the spread of communism was still fundamentally foreign policy priority number one for the United States. How that relationship soured and transformed into bitter enmity is a long one, but it essentially hinged on bin Laden's complaints in his fatwas. The real catalyst, though, was the arrival of American troops in Saudi Arabia in 1990. They were there to liberate Kuwait from the Iraqi invasion, but for bin Laden, this was sacrilege that so many Western troops should soil the ground of the Muslim holy lands. With the threat of the Soviet Union now gone in Afghanistan, bin Laden turned his hatred to the United States. Ultimately, he was determined to see what he considered should be exclusively Muslim lands free of infidels. So came the declaration of war, the fatwas, the bombings. Then, of course, the tragedy of 9-11 in 2001. In response to the American embassy bombings, Osama bin Laden had been on the FBI's 10 most wanted list since 1999, and the CIA and FBI already had small teams looking for him. Now, with the dust of the Twin Towers still settling, the hunt intensified like no other in the history of humankind. And in fact, on the 7th of October 2001, the hunt went from strictly covert to most definitely overt. American and British warplanes and cruise missiles launched targeted strikes against the Taliban in Afghanistan, followed by a surge in ground troops supporting the Afghan Northern Alliance. They were assisted by over 40 nations, in particular by special forces teams from Australia, Germany, Norway, Denmark, Canada and France, as well as those from the US and Britain themselves. The objective, of course, was to remove the Taliban from power so that Afghanistan could no longer be used as a safe haven for al-Qaeda operations. But US and Allied spy agencies also had firm intelligence that bin Laden himself was in the country, and they flooded it with conventional, special and covert forces looking for him. While coalition forces systematically wiped out al-Qaeda facilities across the country, intelligence agencies around the world 
worked tirelessly to figure out exactly where Bin Laden was. And that intelligence operation led to a cave complex in the eastern Afghan mountains, called Tora Bora. In December 2001, it was believed Osama bin Laden was hiding there, and it's highly likely that he was. So, the US launched a 72-hour, non-stop, intense air bombardment against the Tora Bora complex, with the objective of neutralising what they thought were heavily fortified positions. Tora Bora was actually a CIA-funded complex from the era of Soviet invasion where the Afghan militias held out against the Russians. So the plan was to cripple the facility, kill as many of its occupants as possible, and then launch lightning strikes with special forces units. CIA special operatives had already been inserted and were laser-guiding the airstrikes, while Afghan Northern Alliance troops cleared the base of the mountains. Taliban and Al-Qaeda fighters withdrew into the caves to try to escape the wrath of three days of continuous, thunderous airstrikes. But then came the special forces. Tora Bora was suddenly assaulted by US Delta Force and Air Force Special Ops, British SBS, the Royal Navy's Special Operations Unit, and elite German KSK operators. I would not have wanted to be on the wrong side of that. By all accounts, the battle was fierce, bloody and unrelenting. As we saw in our episode on Operation Trent, Al-Qaeda fighters were utterly fanatical and welcomed dying for the cause. It is exceptionally difficult fighting men who, in Bin Laden's own words, love death as we love life. By the end of the battle, though, 200 Taliban and Al-Qaeda militants had been given their ultimate wish and lay dead amidst the smoke and rubble of Tora Bora. But Osama bin Laden wasn't among them. He wasn't anywhere, in fact. He'd escaped. It turns out the complex hadn't been as fortified as previously thought, meaning a 72-hour bombardment wasn't really needed and, in fact, simply gave bin Laden the time to plan a getaway. Probably using an earlier temporary truce brokered by the Northern Alliance, bin Laden melted away into the mountains and completely dropped off the radar. It was suspected that he'd fled across the Pakistan border, but no one, at least in the West, really knew. Quickly, though, there were plenty of other high-ranking Al-Qaeda personalities to go after. As Jose Rodriguez, the head of the CIA's National Clandestine Service, said, Frankly, in the back of our minds we knew we had to get him someday, but we were too busy going after those who were actually plotting against us. While bin Laden faded from view, Al-Qaeda's high command could not do the same and expect the group to continue to exist. They needed to organise and communicate, and this left them open to both signals and human intelligence. But they were, of course, smart, devious, careful. They might have welcomed death, but they still wanted to live long enough to inflict death on Americans, Europeans, Jews, Kurds, Yazidis, and many more. And being Sunni Muslim, Shia Muslims were high on their list of targets too. 
they succeeded multiple times. From 2001 to 2011, Al-Qaeda launched dozens and dozens of indiscriminate attacks, including mosque and synagogue bombings across Africa and the Middle East, bombings of public transports in Madrid and London, and multiple attacks on markets and hotels in Morocco, Iraq and Pakistan. These are just a few examples, and many thousands died. The US and its allies were waging war on terror, and Al-Qaeda-sponsored terror was warring back. And it wasn't just civilians they were targeting either. The CIA suffered one of its worst ever attacks when a Kuwaiti by the name of Humam Khalil al-Badawi convinced US intelligence he was on their side. Actually, he was a double agent and was really an Al-Qaeda jihadi. Claiming to have information on the location of Osama bin Laden, he gained access to Camp Chapman, a forward operating base in Afghanistan. Incredibly, he wasn't searched at the gate, and when he approached his CIA handlers all smiles, he suddenly detonated a suicide vest. Nine people died, including seven CIA officers. But the United States plan was also working. That plan, including drone strikes and coercive interrogations, was called the Worldwide Attack Matrix. It authorised the killing or capturing of all Al-Qaeda operatives everywhere and saw counter-terrorism operations in 80 countries around the world. The aim was nothing short of the systematic destruction of Al-Qaeda. As the deputy head of the CIA's counter-terrorism centre, Phil Mudd said, we're not in the business of disruption alone. The business became dismantlement. And one of the key moments behind that dismantlement was the capture of Abu Zubaydah, Al-Qaeda's number three. In 2002, Pakistani intelligence got wind of his whereabouts in one of a number of safe houses, and they, together with the CIA and FBI, raided all of them, rounding up every male, blindfolding their eyes, zip-tying their hands, and carting them off for interrogation. Zubeda ended up being tortured, first in Poland under the United States Extraordinary Rendition Program, and later in Guantanamo Bay in Cuba. It's almost certain he was waterboarded multiple times. Waterboarding is where a captive is immobilised with their head facing up. A cloth is placed over the face, nose and mouth, and then water poured over the top. It feels like you're drowning. Zubeda was also subjected to sleep deprivation, forced nudity and confinement in stress positions where the body is positioned awkwardly or painfully. It's unclear when he became compliant, as they say in the CIA, either during this torture or before during more traditional interrogation techniques. But either way, he broke. Jose Rodriguez said, Zubeda gave us the playbook about how to go after the Al-Qaeda high command. Very quickly, every chief of operations, as Rodriguez put it, was either killed or captured. 
Al-Qaeda was being systematically shredded, but the US still wanted the head of the snake, the elusive Osama bin Laden. A breakthrough, though, was coming. For years after bin Laden had slipped through the United States' grasp at Tora Bora, he had remained resolutely off the radar. Bin Laden had gone dark, didn't use phones, didn't travel, didn't communicate in any way with the outside world. Other than by courier. It had been theorised by US intelligence that even if bin Laden had gone total incognito on them, he still had to have at least one person helping him, linking him to the outside world. And now, through the interrogations of various Al-Qaeda captives, the CIA got wind of a name. Abu Ahmed al-Kuwaiti. And rumour was that he was a courier to none other than bin Laden himself. But while the CIA knew that al-Kuwaiti existed, they knew nothing about him, where he was, how to find him, or even what his real role was. Maybe he was another dead end, another false hope. So why not save themselves a lot of time? Why not play the ace up their sleeve and ask another captured member of the Al-Qaeda High Command, their operations chief of chiefs, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed? He was banged up in a CIA black site somewhere in Poland and so far had given away little in real intelligence, despite being tortured. Now, though, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed gave the game away. When his interrogators flat out asked him who Al-Kuwaiti was, he jumped back startled. He tried to cover it by saying he was acquainted with a man by that name, but he was a low-level nobody, and that told the CIA a lot. But not as much as what he did next. He sent a secret message to other Al-Qaeda detainees, but it was intercepted by his American guards. The message told them all not to say a word about the courier, Al-Kuwaiti. It was now obvious that Al-Kuwaiti was someone of importance and all eyes turned to him in the hunt for bin Laden. The CIA was beginning to smell its prey. Now the pace quickened. Through various Al-Qaeda detainees at Guantanamo Bay and black sites, the CIA learned Al-Kuwaiti's real name and that he lived in a small town in Pakistan called Abbottabad. They tracked phone calls from his family in the Persian Gulf all to Pakistan. One of those phone calls was tracked by the American National Security Agency to Al-Kuwaiti's exact location in Pakistan. And then, in 2010, Pakistani agents working for the CIA followed the courier to a specific residence in Abbottabad. In fact, it was both a residence and a compound. It had walls up to 18 feet high, topped with barbed wire, and lay on a 38,000 square foot plot of land. It was the only place like it in the neighbourhood, and it stood out like a sore thumb. Could this be where bin Laden was hiding? The US needed to be sure. So now followed intense air and satellite surveillance of the compound, 
and even a fake vaccination programme was organised. Nurses gained access to the residents in order to vaccinate the children there, but instead extracted their DNA, which was compared to a sample of Bin Laden's sister, who had died in Boston in 2010. US President Barack Obama met with his national security advisers and intelligence chiefs five times trying to decide what to do. Evidence strongly suggested that Bin Laden was in that Abbottabad compound, but it still wasn't certain, and an operation to get him was risky to say the least. There was no question of asking Pakistan's permission, as Pakistan was suspected of helping him hide in the first place. A leak tipping Bin Laden off was too great a risk. But that meant the US would have to violate Pakistan's territorial sovereignty, which is precedentially and politically explosive. If detected, Pakistan might even try to shoot down the unauthorised, unannounced and unknown aircraft. The US was still haunted too of the Black Hawk Down fiasco in Mogadishu in 1993, when an operation to seize powerful warlords led to 19 American dead, one captured and two Black Hawk helicopters shot down. But Barack Obama's number one foreign policy priority matched the American public's. Get Bin Laden. That need overrode the risks and he green-lighted one of the United States' most important operations in recent decades. Operation Neptune Spear. In the dark, early hours of the 2nd of May 2011, two dozen operators of the US Navy's elite SEAL Team 6 secretly descended on the Abbottabad compound. They flew in two Blackhawks beneath the radar, skimming the roofs of the sleeping town. Streetlights had been killed beforehand, so all was pitch dark, and as the Blackhawks made their final approach, the SEALs switched to night vision. One team was rapidly dropped outside the compound and rushed to form a defensive perimeter, keeping an eye especially on a nearby Pakistani military base. But now the nightmare of Mogadishu nearly came back to haunt the Americans. The second team was about to be dropped inside the compound when their Black Hawk's tail grazed one of the compound walls, forcing it into an emergency landing. Thanks to the skills of the pilots, though, the crash was soft, and the seals surged out of the helicopter as if nothing had happened. Gates and fences were blown open, and now death began. The courier, Al Kuwaiti, was one of the first to be killed. Armed with an AK-47, he opened fire, but was quickly taken out. As the seals worked their way upstairs, a second man was shot and killed as he brandished a weapon and Bin Laden's own son, Khalid, also died under a hail of American retribution. Two women were found and watched over while a final squad of SEALs moved up to the third floor, the penthouse, the only place Bin Laden would be if he was there. As US forces smashed through the door, there he was. Osama Bin Laden stood behind his youngest wife. Two bullets instantly ripped into his head and chest, killing him instantly. After so long, 
the architect of 9-11 and of multiple other terrorist attacks, was dead. The SEALs quickly swept the compound for intelligence, destroyed the crashed Black Hawk, and left the scene in a Chinook with Bin Laden's lifeless body. Less than 40 minutes after arriving, they were gone like ghosts in the night. Using facial recognition software, known photos, physical measurements, and DNA analysis, the Americans were virtually 100% sure that their dead captive was Osama bin Laden. Not wanting his grave to become a shrine of martyrdom, the US took him to the aircraft carrier USS Carl Vinson, gave him Islamic funeral rites, and buried him at sea. Al-Qaeda did not crumble with his death, but instead accelerated an already begun process of devolution into multiple other groups, one notably being ISIS. Nobody, though, had expected that bin Laden's death would miraculously bring about the end of Islamic terrorism. What it had done was enable the United States to exact revenge on the man who had sponsored, called for, planned and masterminded the attacks on the World Trade Center ten years earlier, and many other terrorist attacks around the world before and since. Many of the methods used in tracking bin Laden have come under intense scrutiny and sometimes withering criticism, especially the use of torture or, quote, enhanced interrogation. The existence of CIA black sites and Guantanamo Bay, where human rights are indefinitely suspended, and the use of the fake vaccination program to extract the DNA of children. But despite this, Jose Rodriguez still says, you can't argue with success, and the fact of the matter is, we were extremely successful. The controversy will never go away. But what has gone away is Osama bin Laden, and that fact alone makes the world a better place. Join us next time for a group of unsung heroes from World War II, a pioneering band of jungle warfare specialists fighting the Japanese behind enemy lines. This elite force was named after the mythical Burmese beast, the Chinthi, a fearsome blend of eagle and lion. To its commander, Ord Wingate, the Chinthi symbolised his vision of the close coordination of air and land forces. Many of today's special forces owe much of their inspiration to the Chindits. I'm Andrew McKenzie. Thanks for listening. See you then.